What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Katie Shea of Divergent Capital. Divergent is a generalist fund that prefers to invest at the pre-seed. Katie's one of the founding partners of the fund, and within her role, she focuses on using her previous experience within marketing to help her portfolio commercialize and scale. In this talk, we discuss emerging managers establishing track record as marketing collateral, building scalable systems while also providing hands-on support to a portfolio, and underwriting technical and business model risks at the pre-seed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, Confluence fam, what up? We have the amazing Katie Shea with us. We've heard um, actually an abnormal amount of people say that we need to get in touch with her. Everyone from her kinfolk over at the Kairos Club in K50 to some really interesting LPs that I'm a huge fan of to just people in our community. Everyone give a, a very warm welcome to Katie, who's launching Divergent along with Lucy. And yeah, I just want to say thanks for coming out. Katie, you want to- Thanks wanna- for having us. Yeah, for sure. How about in a couple minutes, you introduce yourself and Divergent, and then we, we get into the thick of things. Sounds great. So I came into investing from a fairly non-traditional route, more from the, the founder and operator side. You know, I grew up in a, a family of lifestyle entrepreneurs, so everybody in my family owned a small business of some kind, a manufacturing company, sign company, daycare centers, catering companies. So It was probably not a surprise to anybody that I ended up going down a fairly entrepreneurial career path myself. Went to NYU for college, actually started my first company out of an NYU dorm room, which in hindsight, I'm pretty sure was illegal, but it ended up working out and then we became a good student success story for NYU. So they got over it, but started my career in the manufacturing world, manufacturing soft goods overseas, selling them into the Neiman Marcus and Macy's and Bloomingdale's of the world. So that was really my first true entrepreneurial endeavor. We ran that business for over four years. We bootstrapped it to profitability. We were doing millions of year, millions of dollars a year in revenue, and we actually sold that business in 2013. That for me was where I was fortunate to have you know some liquidity for the first time after not consistently paying myself for a couple of years, which all founders tend to do, but isn't, isn't the first thing people like to talk about. And I was lucky enough that I had created some really strong founder communities while I was a founder. And we had won some of those 25 under 25, 30 under 30 awards. And other young founders got, we became my really close friends. You know, we got to commiserate about both the, the good and the bad, right? Not what we, not necessarily what we were telling the, the reporters or investors, what was actually keeping us up at night. And I made, started making some investments in those friends. And that was really my start in, in investing. I had made almost 20 angel investments before I formally jumped into venture about four years ago. So after I sold the company, I spent basically the, the last decade at venture-backed startups in head of marketing roles, B2B, direct consumer, always owning the growth KPIs, really from that zero to 30 million in revenue stage is where I spent 
the majority of my career. And then didn't know venture capital was a thing for most of my life. And once I started investing, even just small angel checks, I became hooked. I loved absolutely loved meeting with founders for breakfast, for lunch, for, for drinks after work. And that became my favorite part of the day. And I was fortunate enough for some of my early investments to be really successful companies. And the word gets out that you're investing and more and more people reached out. And I already had a, a pretty strong network in the ecosystem in New York, especially in tech. And it went from there. My partner, Lucy, absolutely my better half, came into venture from a totally different route than my own. She actually grew up in China and emigrated to the States um, when she was a teenager. And so for me, I grew up around all small business owners. Lucy grew up around scientists, academics, technologists, and engineers, and really had that like STEM STEM experience for, for most of her life. So she, she came to the States when her mom got a job at John Hopkins. Uh, she's in Baltimore. Uh, she ended up going to Brown for undergrad, studied math, worked at Bridgewater for a bit, and then actually went back and got her advanced degree in machine learning at NYU. Basically studied under the absolute godfathers of deep learning. And she was the first technical investor at Graycroft and then a deep tech investor at 112 Capital for the past couple of years. And uh, Lucy and I met uh, about seven years ago at a tech conference in New York, and we, we stayed in touch. I think we really gravitated towards each other because we both felt like we were pretty non-traditional to have landed in the asset class. And first we became friends. I think we we didn't actually have a ton of professional overlap in, in the early years of our friendship. And what I mean by that is I, I was a consumer journalist investor. I invested in digital health. I invested in uh, CPG and commerce and logistics, uh, fintech, real estate tech, or kind of where some of my breakouts are. And Lucy's world looked really different. It was PhDs coming out of universities looking to commercialize their life's work. And these PhDs were pitching deep tech funds like Lucy's, deep tech funds were co-investing with other deep tech funds. And there really wasn't too much overlap in, in the types of companies and, and deals that we would look at. And I'd say really the catalyst of Divergent was a couple of years ago, we started to notice something was changing. And I found myself calling Lucy more and more often to get her thoughts on a company I was looking at and, and vice versa. Lucy became my expert on anything really on the tech and science side of the house. She's really that like CTO to my CMO skill set. So I would start to see a digital healthcare company, but at the core of the technology was a really complicated machine learning algorithm. And a 10 minute call with Lucy was always the most kind of effective, efficient form of diligence. And on the flip side, you know, Lucy would start to see a robotics company, but instead of the founders wanting to do robotics as a service, which is your typical deep tech business model, they actually wanted to own you know, the, the full stack, the full supply chain. And she would call me and say, hey, like, how do you sell into OEMs? Who buys this? You know, what does the budget look like? How do they think about ROI? And so we started to become each other's superpowers, even though we weren't at the same firm. And we started to see more and more companies that were really launching, we thought in, in a unique way, right? They were taking on both tech risk and business model risk. They were doing something a little bit different, a little bit quirky. It didn't perfectly fit in Lucy's deep tech portfolio. It didn't perfectly fit in my consumer journalist portfolio. And these were the companies that Lucy and I were getting the most excited about. And when we were looking at the public markets, we were seeing companies like Tesla, Ginkgo Bioworks, Gore-Tex is another great example of a private company, but these are companies, 500 plus billion dollar market cap, $4 billion market cap, $4 billion in annual revenue. And these are companies that took on both 
tech risk and business model risk, not just one of the other. So for us, we were like, it doesn't make sense that the, the rest of the ecosystem is saying, you know, let's wait and see for these companies. The deep tech investors only wanted to take on tech risk. The consumer investors only want to take on, you know, founder or market risk. And we saw a, a gap forming for, for these companies, particularly at that that first round of institutional capital. Almost two years ago now, Lucy and I just, we created an LLC. We pulled some personal capital in 50-50 and we started to kind of pressure test the, the thesis and then the partnership. And were there enough companies at the intersection of our two worlds that we both got excited about? Could we find the founders first? Could we win deals? So we invested in, in five companies. They're doing incredibly well uh, across all different sectors. I'm happy to talk through some specifics, but I've seen some of you all's investments. I would love to. Yeah, time. no. And we're really proud that portfolio is now sitting at, you know, 73% IRR. And obviously the market's kind of crazy right now, but I might say even more than we're proud of the follow on capital and the markups. These businesses are doing incredible. One is 7x revenue last year. Another is doing 600K in revenue a couple months after they've launched. And so obviously this is a long game industry and time will tell, but just every day we're getting more and more excited and confident about the thesis based on kind of the, the success and really traction of our first investment. So, so that was a lot. I will pause there, <laughs> but hopefully that gives you guys some helpful backstory. No, I think that was all amazing. I'm curious as to like, I mean, you both did this for a long time. You did this beta test piece and then you actually decided to go out to market. Like, how did you know or what was the deciding factor yeah. that led you all to truly start this fund, especially in the midst of a pandemic right. in a seemingly yeah. frothy market? Your returns make it a little easier than most, even though it's still probably incredibly difficult. Yeah, um, we're just, we're total masochists. So I don't know. I think it, it, there's so many things, but... Lucy and I love what we do. You know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of noise and venture, but at the crux of it for Lucy and I, it is all about these founders and all about these founding teams. We talk about deals, but you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about, we're talking about companies, we're talking about people's dreams. And so I think what Lucy and I have always really liked, and probably because we have a bit of that underdog background and childhoods ourselves, is really, you know, betting on those underdogs before it's obvious that they, sh you know, before it's obvious that they should be bet on. And so I think for Lucy and I, the only way to really control that was to do it ourselves. We loved our previous firms. We love our previous partners, but we were just getting more and more excited about the thesis, about the combination of our two skill sets. I'll give you one example. When we first started taking calls together, you know, after every first call, we would we pop open a Google Doc. We would put our, our follow-up questions in there. And I think one of my real aha moments of, wow, there's something really special here, was Lucy and I both put our questions in this doc, and there wasn't a single overlap in the question set. And to me, it was reading through Lucy's questions. I was like, wow, like these would have been total blind spots for me on the technology side. And it was the same for Lucy on the go-to-market and commercialization side. And so, you know, I think for us, we were getting more and more confident about the partnership and kind of the ability to, to do diligence and then support the founders post-investments with these kind of CMO and CTO skill sets that we have. But I think on top of that, our founders really helped us, I think, jump off the, jump off the cliff in a way. We 
these five companies that we invested in. We, we met the founders first. We did a lot of the work and we acted as if divergent capital was already a thing. We would write extensive memos after extensive diligence. We'd share those memos with our, our friends at other firms that could actually lead the deal. And Lucy and I did not have unlimited liquidity on the personal side. So we weren't able to lead these first five investments, but we did, we did all the work basically and gave away all the value. And along the way, our founders were saying, oh, guys, nobody else even did tech diligence, which is crazy, but unfortunately very common in, in markets as competitive as this one, or they would say, you guys have a really special partnership, or you were really the only ones who understood both the tech side and the go-to-market. And I think that was really the, the icing on the cake for us. It's like our founders were telling us that there was a white space for them during their fundraising process. We were filling it. And so we, we decided to go for it. And we're, it's a $15 million vehicle. It's a micro fund. We were definitely conscious of, we didn't want to fundraise in perpetuity. We didn't know what a COVID, you know, Zoom fundraise would look like, but also more importantly for us, going back to one of my earlier points, we really wanted to be that brave capital that we thought was missing. So just from a portfolio construction perspective, you know, we're looking to invest in 25 companies our average investment will be $500,000. We're looking to lead or co-lead that, that pre-seed round. And just any founders that end up listening in, just to give you a sense of where we've sat from a valuation perspective across our first five investments, the average, the average round dynamic was a $1.5 million round on a $6.5 million post money. And so we've flexed down a little bit on the round size and the valuation. We've flexed up a little bit. When we mean first capital or, or first check partner or brave capital, we, we really do. These are companies where we're taking on both the tech risk and the product risk. I'm sorry, the tech risk, tech risks and the business model risk. And we don't have any problem doing that, but we have to price that, that risk accordingly. So that's where we've sat so far in the ecosystem. Makes a ton of sense. Can you talk a little bit about the the name and how you all came up with divergent <laughs> yeah we we love I, mean, it. I really like it like i know fact, we, it's, it's really hard it. to come up with a good name in venture yeah. capital nowadays because there's so many you know yeah i i'll give this one to lucy all the way i think she had been thinking about this uh, before i had and she had divergent in her mind i think Anyone who meets Lucy knows that she's just, she's incredibly conviction driven, no FOMO. I like to think of, of myself that way also, but def, Lucy for sure. And I just think it's perfect. It's just so fitting for, for us and our founders in, in so many ways. I think we're a little bit, again, like our backgrounds and our, our paths to venture are a bit divergent. I think our founders are similar. They're not fit perfectly or squarely in, into a box. So we're trying to create our own futures. And so... For us, I think it hits on our personalities, our founders' personalities, and also just from a brand perspective, we want to, we wouldn't be doing this during a global pandemic if we didn't plan to do it for decades across many funds. And so for us, you know, we really want to, we really want to stay true to those roots of not you know, being conviction driven, not necessarily just falling into what everyone else thinks is cool and sticking to our guns. So we think Divergent Capital captures that really well from a couple of angles. Totally agree. Totally agree. I see. We've talked to, at this point, like a, a plethora of, of emerging managers about the challenges they've faced. And we also like go through the struggles ourselves in some ways. And one topic that keeps coming up is the idea around building out track record as marketing collab collateral. Yep. Like you all kind of had that yourselves and you all are, you did the five investments and you've locked in. 
But can you talk about like how you went about meeting those founders first? Is it, were they people who you met during your founder days or were you actually out on the search, like doing like outbound thematic sources? So a bit of both. And I think to your point, yes, we did these five investments from this, the shared LLC. These are the five investments that we warehouse and are rolling into the fund as as part of our GP commit. But Lucy and I have been doing this for almost a decade each. So between the two of us, we've invested in 50 companies. We've deployed 10 million in first check capital. Those companies have gone on to raise over 580 million and and follow on. The total value of our portfolio companies now are 3.5 billion, which is crazy and and awesome. And so our fall-on rate is 90%. Our MOIC and our IRR and our DVPI are sitting at places we're, we're really proud of. So I think for us, we've, we've, gotten, we've gotten lucky in the sense that we, we actually do have a, a track record to, to speak through both as individuals, as partners at our previous firms, and then also these five investments at Divergent. But to get to, to your question about founders and sourcing, I think this is another thing that Lucy and I got incredibly excited about from a partnership perspective. My I have a really deep networks of of founders and angels and operators. I started this founder community a decade ago. I have an angel community. I have a female angel community and all these groups meet once a month and kind of share ideas, share deal flow. So those communities have become incredibly powerful for us on the deal flow side of the house. So Lucy's network looks really different. It's scientists, it's academics, it's technologists. She's a mentor at a ton of kind of university programs. She is the only person I know that reads academic research papers for fun on the weekend. She runs a monthly reading group with CTOs and data scientists where they they dig into a recently published academic white paper. And so I think at our core, Lucy and I are just both natural community builders and those communities now have started to treat us really well on, on the deal flow side of the house. And I'd say the, the second cohort right now, as I mentioned, we, we have made over 50 investments at this point between the two of us. And that means we have almost 100 founders that are constantly sending us new deal flow. That's actually some of our favorite emails to get because two reasons. One, it means that the founder you know thinks at highly enough of us to introduce us to other founders. And uh, they tend to do a lot of the selling on our behalf. It's like, Katie and Lucy are amazing. You need to talk to them. We believe that founders tend to to get better deal flow than investors. If you think about, especially for the stage we invest, you know, pre-product, pre-revenue, founders feel more comfortable talking to other founders before they think they're ready to talk to investors. It can be more of like a mentorship conversation versus a pitch. Um, And we meet folks at that stage, it's really a win-win, right? Because we're actually just, we're helping them think through go-to-market. Lucy's helping them think through their tech and product strategy. We're getting founders at that stage before they're in fundraising mode with, with no vulnerabilities and they have to put on this like confident smile and act like everything's perfect. So that's where we love to, to meet founders. And we do a little bit of outbound. Lucy actually built a software that we're just starting, we're just starting to use to have more of an outbound strategy of, of sectors that we know we want to go after. So it's a combination of things as it is for most funds. I think we have great co-investor relationships. A lot of our co-investors over the years are actually now LPs in the fund, both you know, GPs at a personal level, but also some later stage funds that came in. So we're really excited to us. I think it's the access, it's the signal that hopefully we can continue to provide to, to the market. Feel it, feel it. How do you think about making sure that as your portfolio scales, at the pre-seed, you're still able to, to scale your time across the founders? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're, we have a 
fairly concentrated strategy, right? 25 companies per fund. I think Lucy and I feel have some contrarian thoughts on this. We're not taking board seats. If a founder wants us to and is begging us to, and we have super relevant experience, like of course, but we have, I think made, I think our reputations and our careers have largely been made by the really informal dynamic that we've kept with our founders. Like I'd rather be the the investor or the partner that a founder's texting at, at midnight because you know something broke or they're stressed or they need some advice versus the partner that they kind of have to like posture at a board meeting for. And we want them to save that. It's like to me it's for right now for us that's just we're founder operators turned investors. I think we have a founder to founder empathy that is really tough for career investors to have. And, and don't get me wrong, there's brilliant career investors out there. Many of them are my friends and some of my favorite co-investors. But I think particularly at that early stage, that's just the vibe that we want to maintain. So yeah, how do we think about stealing our time? It's a great question. We're a 2GP team, right? We're 50-50. I want to stay lean even as even as we grow. And so for us, it's, again, it's, it has to do with a couple of things, taking out the, the formality of kind of formal board structures, being available, yet text and calls as needed. And I think we, I think like most investors, you, you tend to work with your founders in like chunks of time. For me, sometimes I'll hop in as someone's thinking about go to market or they're making their first couple marketing hires. I'll get looped into the interview process. It's the same for Lucy on the tech side and the product side. And then for us, given how early we're investing, obviously a huge part of how we're supporting founders, especially those that aren't necessarily already plugged into the the venture ecosystem is helping them with their follow-on capital raises. Like we have a, we're doing that this right now for a company that, you know, they're, we invested you know, incredibly early. They seven X revenue last year in a tough market and like a negatively co- impacted COVID market. We have more conviction in this team and the technology than ever before. And, you know, I think Lucy and I, sent 40 emails this morning to, to Series A investors to help them line up conversations for their next round. We've been doing this for a decade. We've made incredible relationships and a big part of, I think, what we're doing is, is bringing those connections to our, to our founders. Makes sense. Yeah, actually, I'm curious as to how when you were building out your company, how you felt about the thought of having like investors as friends and like how that may have impacted this. Cause what I've found is that you can be a really helpful board member, but like even in doing so, you end up just becoming their friend at the end of the day. There's this weird dynamic of depending on who the board consists of, especially as the company matures and whatnot, yeah. like it starts to like their bosses versus like their helpers or advisors. It's just, like I, I think the way you're touching on that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So it's interesting for my company, I, I never raised money. So I never had investors, you know, we, we bootstrapped to profitability and we, we factored against our receivables to grow because we had, it was a B2B business primarily. And we had really large purchase orders and oh, we used those to help us with cash flow. So I don't have any experience on the founder side, like having investors or having board members at the high level. I think, yeah, I, I struggle with kind of board structures. I think that a lot of people that are starting companies for the wrong reasons, it it tends to sound and look like, I just want to be my own boss. (laughs) Like I I want to be in charge of my own destiny. I want to create the future. I don't want to have to report to anybody. And whenever I hear that, I immediately, listen, there's actually nothing you can do where you have more bosses than starting a company. (laughs) Like you, 
every single customer is your boss, every single investor is your boss. Like you have so many stakeholders to report to and in many cases they want different things and there's like tensions to be managed. I think obviously you shouldn't be looking at board members as your boss, right? In a way, I think that the dream scenario, it's almost like an external C-suite. And I think there's pros and cons to that. But candidly, I haven't spent many much time on boards. I am totally fine with that. I don't have any need to change that in, in the future with my investing style. And so probably not the best person to, to talk to about board dynamics. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Feel that, feel that. Well, look, one thing that we've been trying to do is let people ask us questions. What I want to do is let you talk about maybe one or two companies in your portfolio that are dope. And then while doing so, maybe on the back of your mind, be thinking about anything you want to ask us. Okay, awesome. So we're incredibly excited about our, our first five investments. The first company we invested in is an incredible company called Machina Labs. It's a vertically integrated robotics company. And it's going after the, the manufacturing uh, sector, initially focused on sheet metal formation. So if you think about the sheet metal formation industry, you're talking about, you know, trains, planes, automobiles. When you have to create a new model or a new door or anything, there's an incredibly expensive tooling process. And so this company is basically able to work with OEMs of the world. They're already working with you know, Fortune 500 companies to, to basically create those pieces faster and cheaper than anything else in the market. They're doing amazing. We invest in a company called EdSites, another incredible team. They're they built a predictive analytics platform. It uses natural language processing and machine learning to, to communicate with college students and essentially predict and prevent student dropout, which if you think about it from the university side of the house, it's, it, that's a revenue churn problem as well as like a, a social impact problem. They've, they've done absolutely incredible. And it's interesting, I think a lot of people, a lot of people in venture, they hear ed tech and they're like, nope, not interested. Like schools don't have budgets, like the sales cycle is awful. So we're so excited to see ed sites breaking out and proving that to be untrue. The third company we invested in is called Remedy Robotics. It's a software only medical device. Their first use case that they're tackling is autonomous stroke surgery. So like big idea, they are ahead of every single milestone that they had lined up. And so we're excited for them as well. Topicals is our fourth investment. Uh, it's a science-based skincare brand. It's run by a brilliant marketer and community builder, Alameda Alloway, who they're basically going after the one in four Americans that suffer from some type of chronic skin issue. So think hyperpigmentation, eczema, acne. They're totally breaking out. They, I think they're just doing an incredible job destigmatizing perfect skin. What you've seen happen with body empowerment over the past couple of years and topicals act absolutely leading the way for skin empowerment in the beauty industry and it's really resonating with gen z they're on fire and then our fifth investment it's it's a company called shellworks it's a material science innovation they're replacing single-use plastics so uh they've basically oh, that's yeah, that's there, it's a brilliant team. They're based in London and they basically come up with these proprietary formulations where a global CPG can basically, instead of pouring plastic pellets into the machine that makes their bottles or their packaging, they can pour the Shellworks pellets into the same machinery. So there's no disruption to the supply chain, which is really differentiated in the sustainability space. So those are the first five. We're thrilled to have them be a part of the portfolio. We have a couple more exciting companies in the pipeline that we're, we'll be announcing in the next couple. Wow. You all are crushing it. 
Those all seem interesting. There weren't any ones where I was like, interesting. <laughs> like there was, you know, usually like someone we, will throw a company at you. Yeah. You're like, we, I guess that was cool. I think like we, we just, we've always gravitated towards founders that are solving real problems. And I think that's what helps founding teams persevere through the in super intense highs and super intense lows of, you know, the often 10 plus year journey of building a billion dollar company. They have to have that obsession with solving the problem, I think, to get them through that. So, you know, I don't love the, the phrase mission driven because I think sometimes it can just propel people to think more of the nonprofit, you know, side of the house. But you know, at the core, all of these, all these companies are, they're, they're solving a problem that the founders are obsessed with. And I think they're, they're incredibly mission driven in that way. And that helps them, you know, attract and retain incredible talent. It helps them raise follow-on capital. It helps them sign customers and commercialize. And we're, we definitely think those first five companies fit the bill really well there. True. With that, do you have any questions you'd like to ask us? I'll let Clay answer first. Sure. You, you guys alluded to this before, but you mentioned talking to a lot of emerging managers about how difficult it is to fundraise. Any insights you've gotten from folks about like hacks or making that easier or things that they did that expedited the process of hurting, hurting kind of all these sheeps and LPs to do things and sign docs at the same time. We're so lucky to have an incredible LP base so far and people that have believed in us from day one, but I always love hearing about what other emerging managers are doing to juggle and balance it all gracefully. <laughs> yeah, Tyler, you want me to take that one first? Yeah, go for it. Then I'll hop on the back end. Cool. Yeah, it's a good question. I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to track record more than anything. So trying to figure out ways to get into these really quality deals early has been the the same answer from a lot of the different folks that we've talked to. Some of them have had more creative ways of how they've been able to do that. I'd say building social proof, whether that's from other investors that you all like to co-invest with or have only good things to say about you, or that's founders that you work with that have the same experience working with you. Yeah. That helps and goes really far. I think it's all just a game of building trust with your LP base and making them say yes to getting a meeting with you in the first place. There's a lot of ways to do that, but I th again, I think it really comes down to establishing track record with like before actually managing somebody else's money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree. I think there are a few hacks. Like, for instance, in in New York, there's this thing that that we have like a group of folks called the Black Folks with Deal Flow Group. Which shout out to Chase, who's the head of partnerships at Carta. Put yeah, together. I know Chase really well. He He's a part of that founder group that I mentioned to you guys that I started about a decade ago. So I, I literally yeah. see him every single month at least. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a, a group of investors and emerging GPs and they all support each other. And I think creating a community of folks who are going through the same thing with you is huge. Yeah. I think you can't under undervalue that. Because the, every time they learn something, you learn something. And then another piece is uh, people can introduce you to an uh, LP of theirs or that may not have been a perfect fit for them, but is a great fit for you. So I think GP recommendations is something that LPs love to get. Yeah, that's that been one of our strongest sources of LPs is you know, other GPs that we work with, knowing what our you know, ideal investment parameters are and saying, oh, I have an investor that fit, 
fit the bill, especially after the first close. <laughs> then, yeah. you, you know, it, it's then you're like, okay, I we have our commitment, and let's try to let's just ha- try to help the ecosystem move forward by by making those introductions that are win-win in many cases. Exactly. I think what I have two more. One is something that we've done personally, which is for a lot of people getting those original checks, if it's not coming out of your own savings, it's really tough. So you, a lot of people end up taking on the syndicate model, which is awesome. But another option is if you can find someone who's looking to get diversification into venture and has a pool of capital to just do investments like on their behalf, that's huge yeah. because it lets you build track record, lets them learn about the industry. And of course, it's incredibly privileged for me to say something like, just find a rich friend who's looking to get some venture exposure. But like that could be an easier route than the first step, which is just a thesis of building on the shoulders of giants. So there's a lot of people who end up having a huge fun one or end up working for someone and helping them launch a family office that helps them build a track record in that way. Yeah. And then the last component, which I think is like brilliant, but takes a certain kind of person to like really absorb what it might mean, which was, and, and maybe you also think about this, but it seems like you all are crushing it either way. Just go bigger. If you think about it, like when you're creating a pipeline as a fund manager, you have a universe of people who are looking for the type of fund that you might have. And if you're an emerging manager or a micromanager, that universe may not actually be as big as the broader LP universe because a lot of the wealthiest people just aren't looking to, one, write small checks because they have so much capital to deploy. And two, they're not necessarily looking to give you more than, call it, 10% of your fund. So for some people, if their strategy is battle-tested, instead of them raising like a $10 million or $20 million fund, they may actually considerably expand their pipeline if they just say, screw it, the formula works, and then go for a fund that's like multiples of that, whether that be the 50, 75, or 100 million mark. Because- I, I really struggle with that strategy though, because I honestly think that's one of the reasons why we do have so much mispricing in, in the ecosystem right now. It goes back to that earlier point around when you have the larger and larger fund, you need to deploy more and more capital into one particular company to to make it work. And so, you know, I think Lucy and I, we think about this a lot, but I think it's, it's actually harder right now to be, you know, let's call it a hundred million dollar ish fund because everyone is trying to deploy the same amount of capital and kind of get into the same seed round. And so we were trying to stay super focused on like preempting that that hyper competitive seed round. In most of our investments, they're raising that seed anywhere from <laughs> one month to twelve months after our initial pre-seed investment. And that's what we've been really good at over the course of our careers, right? It's like preempting that sequoia round, the Union Square Ventures round, the benchmark round, the insight round, light speed round. And it's it gets harder and harder to do that as you grow your AUM. So that's something we're definitely conscious of as we're thinking about fund one and you know fund two and beyond of where do we want to play and why yeah I, I totally feel it I think some people maybe circumvent that by having like multi-stage focuses and different tranches of their portfolio allocation but no it's definitely a challenge totally. everyone yep. wants 500k to 1.5 million nowadays when everybody wants service in it's but right yeah clay no actually do you have any other questions for us Katie and then if not, Clay, do you want to kick us off with the quick fire? No, I think, I think I'm good. That was awesome. Thanks for sharing. Of course. Cool. All right, Katie. So we do these at the end. We've got five questions, all meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We're not great at actually hitting that 
threshold of 275. <laughs> so we try to give it as guidelines. First one we've got is what's a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Raise as much money as you can. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I think I, I say that with the context of I think next year is going to be tough for a lot of companies that raised, you know, a ton of money at really high valuations before finding product market fit. And it, it's nice to get that big valuation, to have that that money in the bank when you're getting something off the ground, but the bar, you know, gets exponentially higher for your next round. And so I tend to say, raise as little as you can to build something, get some kind of initial indicators around demand and then go from there. Yeah. It applies to both sides too, with like investors attracting a bunch of AUM and you have to deploy it. So I totally agree. Next one in the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? Oh, great question. So I am working from home during a global pandemic with a toddler and a newborn. And my husband is also a founder who just raised a substantial seed round for his retail tech startup. Work-life balance is not uh, our strong suit at the moment, but I will say one of the one of the nice things about being home, not having to commute, is I actually have started to go to a gymnastics class with my daughter once a week in the middle of the workday, which is something that never in a million years would my workaholic self allow to happen. But I kind of got to the point this year of, you know what, I work all the time before they wake up, while they're up, after bed, like it's, I should be able to take an hour in the middle of a work day and, and spend some time with my daughter. And it's been awesome because you're watching like little two-year-olds run around on gymnastics. You're not on your phone. It's just so, it's just so stinking cute. It's like a nice distraction from our tech obsessed work day. I'm just like little kids learning how to you know jump on a trampoline. So that's definitely something that I, I want to continue to carve out over over time totally do you like doing it in the middle of the day and like splitting up the work day in half or would you rather do it in the morning oh that's a great question I think I'd probably rather do it in the morning or at the end of the day but the class just happens to be in the middle of the day so it's like all right we this this is what we got <laughs> yeah yeah I've found I can't work out at the end of the day I just lose motivation like I have to do it first thing when I wake up or else right. I'm not gonna do it yeah. No other way. All right. Third one here. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? The egos. <laughs> oh, man, this is probably going to get me in trouble, but like the over-intellectualization of, of what we do, I it, it drives me crazy when you see massive outcomes happen and all the, the, the tweets and the blog posts go up about, oh, we totally knew it. This was obviously going to be a $7 billion outcome and, you know, then behind the scenes, the company pivoted three times. They almost went bankrupt four times. And so I just think that these are such zigzag journeys. So I just, I know, I, I laugh when I see things like that. I'm like, yeah, I predicted the future. And it's, maybe you did this one time, but there's also probably 70% of the companies in your portfolio where you incorrectly predicted the future. And so you're not writing blog posts about those. And that's just, that's the name of, that's the name of the game. But that's just something that I just, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like some of these Twitter accounts, like VC Brags and VCs congratulating themselves have slowed it down. Like yeah. it, it seems like a I mean, Don't get me wrong. They're, they're hilarious, right? Like I, I, I go on Twitter probably like a couple minutes a day and I think some of these things are really funny, but at the end of the day, I think one of the things that Lucy and I have in common is if we have 30 minutes to kill, we're going to call a founder that's like in a rough spot. We're not going to 
get in a tweet fight, a Twitter fight, we're not necessarily going to write like the best blog post. And so I think, are we the most visible? Do we have the best digital presence of, of real estate investors? No. I think it says something that every single L prospective LP that we've spoken to, if they talk to our founders, like if they get to the stage of references, they invest. And in many cases, they actually double down on where they were going to invest. So I think that's just, that's the way Lucy and I are. That's, that's probably how we're going to stay. And so we, we may not be the best well-known. We hope to be one of the, the most respected from our founders. Yeah. I love that. I've always wondered like some of these really active Twitter accounts that are VCs, what their deal flow actually looks like. Because the game that a lot of people are playing, it seems, is just build up a follower account and hope that deal flow follows that. Yeah. And this may be like a hot take, but I just don't think that works for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not even convinced that people do it for deal flow. I think there's just like a, there's something that feels good, right? About putting content out there on the world and getting positive feedback about it, likes, retweets. I think it's probably more of a nice little ego boost. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. Like everyone needs an ego boost every once in a while. I think it sometimes is more to do with that than like actually trying to get better deal flow. But maybe that's a hot take for me also. Cool. All right. Got two more here. So best piece of advice for junior BCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Oh man, it's so tough, I think, to be a young early investor because it's such an apprenticeship business and the feedback loop is so long. Even if you are able to, you know, source deals and get investments in the companies you're excited about, you have these like proxies of IRR and, and MOIC and things like that. But until you've been in the industry for 15 plus years, you don't actually know if you're good. And I think that kind of goes back to my, I, like it always blows my mind where I'm like, People have these crazy egos and they're the best investors in the world and they've been doing it for a couple of years. And so I think the, the advice I would give is think of kind of your job as like having a positive NPS score with founders and maybe even other co-investors, but I would probably prioritize founders. And I think put a put a time period on like your experiment of being in venture, right? If, if you get to the point of you know, you're doing it for two or three years and maybe you haven't, you know, sourced or gotten a deal across the table. That's a tough, that, it's a tough thing to explain for your next job or your next kind of adventure, right? Like you may be really well liked and really well networked and you had coffee meetings with a thousand people and people think really highly of you, but that, that doesn't tend to be like a hard skill that you can take to the next job. Yeah, I'm probably overly honest with some younger VCs that I mentor, but you know, I definitely think it's, you'll, within two or three years, you'll have a sense of, if you love it, if you hate it, if you know you think you have early signs of being good at it, and it's so it seems so sexy from afar to like break into venture or to be a VC, but it's not for any everybody, and I don't think there should be any shame in actually like realizing you don't want to be in venture. Yeah, again, couldn't agree more. I feel like Tyler and I both have a lot of thoughts there, but really similar to yours, just not for everybody. I think some of the job descriptions of what you actually be doing aren't necessarily the same as what you'd actually be doing. And yeah, I don't know if the pitch to become a partner, it's like you join as an analyst associate, you stay with us, provide loyalty, do a lot of the work and then work your way with partner it isn't always the case. Yeah, I couldn't agree more again. Yeah. All right, last one here. I'm spending a lot of time on these. Who is a mentor of yours that you want to give credit to? Oh man, I'm going to go with Haley Barna at first round. She's been so helpful and valuable for me for so many 
different routes. You know, she's another, you know, founder operator turned investor. I think anyone, you know, whenever you hear Haley's name, it's, there's always a positive association of, from founders, from investors. She, she asks incredible questions. I've seen her at different roundtables and like just really pointed get to the heart of issues questions, which I think is a hugely valuable skill set for early stage investors. And last but not least, she's one of the first <laughs> commitments to, to Divergent Capital and has been such a, a cheerleader and an evangelist and is always happy to jump on calls with institutional LPs that are doing diligence and just look up to her in so many ways. And she's a, a badass mom of two. And so I always, that's just the icing on the cake of somebody you admire so much professionally, but also just respect how she's juggling it all. Love it. Yeah, that's awesome. We've heard good things about her too. Haven't personally connected. We got to get her on here. Yeah, honestly. Happy to help if I can. Please do. This is fun. Thanks guys. Great to meet you. You too. Thanks, Katie. Yo. Huge thanks again to Katie for coming on this week. We hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Katie, we've linked her social info within the description below. And if you're a member of Confluence, you can also find her contact info within the directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.